0: Haunted UK Podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products such as printed T-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers banners signage and much much more for more information or for a free no obligation quote email colin or debbie at cds print at gmail.com you can also find cds print and design on facebook and instagram this is season three of the haunted uk podcast and we're going to be picking up where season two left off We'll be continuing our journey to tell stories of ghosts, poltergeists, unsolved disappearances, mysterious creatures, haunted locations, UFO encounters and much more. So without any further delays, let's get started. Before we carry on, I'd just like to give a shout out to some amazing people who've donated to the show via coffee. They are David Taylor, Alexis Campbell, Eleanor Norfolk, Liam Tumulty, and Julie Bodden. Thank you so much for your donations and for your support. If you'd like to donate to the show, details will be coming up soon. But for now, let's begin this episode. The question of are we alone in the universe is one that captivates and generates debate even today. For the entirety of our existence on planet Earth, the human race has looked to the stars wondering what else could be out there. Another race of humans perhaps, long since gone from Earth due to environmental catastrophes in the distant past. Extraterrestrial beings who are in distant galaxies, or maybe nothing at all. American astrophysicist and cosmologist Carl Sagan said, "...if we are alone in the universe, it sure seems like an awful waste of space." While science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke said, "...two possibilities exist, either we are alone in the universe or we're not. Both are equally terrifying." It's the comment that Professor Stephen Hawking made that I personally feel rings with the most truth. He said, quote, if aliens visit us, the outcome would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. We only have to look at ourselves to see how intelligent life might develop into something we wouldn't want to meet, end quote. But are we looking in the wrong place? Has alien life in some form or another already visited our planet and do we already have the evidence to prove it? is episode three of season three of the haunted uk podcast and in this multi-part series we're going to delve into the story of area 51 and its most famous whistleblower bob lazar In 1977, astronomer Jerry Amon was leafing through data printouts at the Big Ear Radio Observatory Telescope in Delaware, Ohio, when he came across something that amazed him. A series of numbers and letters stood out from everything else on the data sheets. And while this string of characters wouldn't have meant nothing at all to the untrained eye, to Jerry, it could mean the answer to that age old question which we asked at the start of this episode. The Big Ear Telescope ran remotely, so it would be tasked with a particular section of space and then left alone to collect data until the storage systems of the day became full. It would be astronomers like Jerry who would then travel to the telescope, print the data out, reset the storage and then leave the device to carry on with its task. Never before had any telescope picked up anything like this a seemingly mind-blowing series of numbers and letters that could unlock proof of the existence of an extraterrestrial civilization. Jerry and his colleagues checked and checked and checked again, then cross-referenced it with the paths of things such as planets, comets, asteroids, satellites, and literally anything else that could have offered an explanation for this anomaly, but nothing matched up. It seemed that this data was well and truly genuine and real. But what was it? The characters were 6EQ UJ5 and this represented a strong signal that had been received from a section of space during the telescope's last task. Each character denoted a strength in signal which was picked up every 12 seconds. So the whole signal would have lasted around 72 seconds. Jerry was so taken aback by this signal that he circled the data on the printout and wrote the word WOW next to it. Hence its now famous name, the WOW signal. It was also the frequency that this signal was received on, around 1420 MHz, that got the astronomers even more excited. This particular frequency had huge relevance because 1420 MHz was part of a restricted frequency spectrum which was reserved for astronomical research, meaning that no Earth or terrestrial signals could be broadcast on it. The section of space where the signal seemed to have come from was in the constellation of Sagittarius and the area that the antenna of the telescope was listening in on could have covered around six stars, but the signal was only received once. Jerry and his colleagues went through page after page of data, but it was never repeated. They decided to search the same area of sky again, but nothing was ever picked up, and to this day, the WOW signal has never been satisfactorily fully explained. It remains the best evidence we have of a signal which could have come from an alien civilization. But while astronomers were looking to the skies for evidence of alien life, one man firmly on Earth, was about to literally blow the lid off the whole argument about the possibility of a race of beings from another world already being on our planet. In May and November of 1989, a man by the name of Robert Scott Lazar, or Bob Lazar as he would be more famously known, would give two interviews which not only unmasked the location of a top secret testing facility on the outskirts of Las Vegas, but which would also give details of just what the American military were working on out there. Now that we're getting into the meat of this topic, I have to say right now that this may not be everyone's cup of tea as far as subject matter is concerned. However, Area 51 and Bob Lazar have been requested by listeners via email time and time again as an idea for an episode. But I feel that to truly do these topics justice, we're going to need more than just one episode. So this will be a three-part series. This episode will deal with allegedly what Area 51 is and what goes on there. Episode two will go into Bob Lazar's story and episode three will investigate what happened after Lazar's revelations. So how did Area 51 come into being? Well, this goes all the way back to the 1950s and America's concern with the growth of the Soviet Union. The end of World War II should have been a celebration for the Allies, but instead the Soviets decided to completely shut themselves off and begin development in new technologies and nuclear empowerment. Whilst the US was doing the same, it was finding it increasingly difficult to get sensitive information out from behind the Iron Curtain to aid them in what the Soviets' progress in weapons development was. When North Korea invaded South Korea, with the help and support of the USSR in 1950, America felt that it had to step up efforts in aerial reconnaissance. Regular missions were being flown over the USSR by low-flying aircraft, but these were always at risk of being shot down. A high-altitude spy plane was needed, and the CIA knew exactly who to approach to develop it. They contacted Lockheed and Kelly Johnson, who had been instrumental in the design and manufacture of aircraft such as the P-38 Lightning and the P-80 Shooting Star. At the time, Kelly was chief engineer at Lockheed's Burbank plant in California, and as the CIA came knocking on the door, He was about to be promoted to the Vice President of Research and Development. The US Air Force and CIA needed an aircraft that could fly above 70,000 feet, way out of the range of surface-to-air missile systems of that current time. It could operate in all weather conditions and be able to fly huge distances without the need to refuel. The U-2 spy plane was born but the designers and test pilots needed an area of land to test fly the plane in secrecy. Whilst flying over the Groom Lake area, Kelly Johnson knew he'd found it, especially when he saw the dry flat lake bed. It was surrounded by mountains and was far enough away from Las Vegas to make it pretty much inaccessible to the public. Known by its grid reference of Area 51, Kelly wanted to make the prospect of working on top-secret projects in the hot Nevada desert more appealing to potential workers, so he called it Paradise Ranch. By 1955, Area 51 consisted of a paved runway, hangars, fuel storage tanks, mess halls, living quarters, a volleyball court and a movie theater. The US Air Force and the CIA took delivery of their first U-2 spy plane in mid-1955, and to help keep the base as secret as possible, Air Force and Lockheed staff would fly in on Mondays and leave on Fridays. Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK podcast's Coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to Coffee That's K-O-F-I, and search for the Haunted UK Podcast, and for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout-out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK Podcast merchandise, and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-size episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim, and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable and it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month if you'd rather not subscribe then you can simply make a one-off donation every little bit helps so if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level then pop over to coffee and make your donation coffee why not buy us one now let's get back to the episode Now, it's important to begin to draw parallels between activity going on in Area 51 and major UFO incidents that were happening at the same time, especially in America. So, let's not forget that Foo Fighters had been reported by many fighter pilots in World War II, over 10 years prior. The famous Roswell UFO crash had taken place in 1947, again, almost 10 years prior. Roswell is also a case that the Haunted UK podcast will cover at some point, but for now, let's stick to Area 51 and Bob Lazar. 1947 was an incredibly busy year for UFO incidents and sightings. Besides the Roswell crash, there was also the Maori UFO sightings in Washington, which also included encounters with the mysterious Men in Black. Kenneth Arnold also had his sighting of a series of unidentified craft flying near Mount Rainier. Arnold famously described their flying movement as like saucers skipping over water. In 1948, another damned UFO was allegedly recovered from Aztec, New Mexico and taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where it was stored in Hangar 18. This infamous hangar was also the alleged storage building for the Roswell UFO wreckage before both were, again, allegedly moved to Area 51. Incidentally, Wright-Patterson was also the home of the US Air Force-run Project Blue Book, which sought to explain away cases and sightings of unidentified flying objects. It was J. Allen Hynek who came up with the classification for UFO sightings which included close encounters of the first, second and third kind. 1948 was the year that US Air Force fighter pilot Thomas Mantell died whilst chasing a UFO over Kentucky. He flew too high in his P-51 Mustang and blacked out, never regaining consciousness and crashing into the ground. This case was also briefly mentioned in Season 2, Episode 2 of the Haunted UK podcast, UFO Encounter on JAL 1628. That same year, another fighter pilot, George F. Gorman, who was also in a P-51 Mustang, gave chase to an unidentified flying object over Fargo, North Dakota. After witnessing the object perform maneuvers which outpaced his fighter plane, he returned back to Hector Airport unharmed. The Chiles and Whitted encounter also happened in 1948, and this involved two commercial airline pilots who witnessed a bright glowing object, which almost collided with their aircraft. In the early 50s, Paul and Evelyn Trent took photographs of UFOs over their farm in Oregon whilst a major UFO sighting flap took place directly over the skies of Washington, D.C. Commercial airline pilots William Nash and William Fortenbury both went on record, stating that they had witnessed around eight mysterious objects flying in formation near Virginia. John McGinn and John Barton, who were both serving Air Force Colonels and who both worked at the Pentagon, were aboard a military B-25 aircraft flying from California to Colorado when they reported seeing three unidentified flying objects flying in a V formation. More incidents took place, all before the U-2 had even taken to the air for the first time. In 1952, a man named Nick Mariana, who was the manager of the Great Falls Electrics baseball team, filmed two UFOs on his 16mm movie camera for around 16 seconds. There was also the case of the Kelly Hopkinsville Close Encounters. Two families allegedly battled with small, strange humanoid-type creatures, actually engaging in a gunfight on their respective properties with these mysterious invaders. Then there was the disappearance over Lake Superior of both 1st Lt. Felix Eugène Montler and 2nd Lt. Robert L. Wilson, whose F-89C Scorpion was in pursuit of an unidentified object which was picked up on radar over the vastness of the lake. They were sent to intercept it, and radar operators tracked the two targets as they neared each other. Then only one target could be seen continuing on its course. Communications with Moncler and Wilson went dead, and even after huge search efforts were conducted, no bodies or wreckage were ever found. The U-2 no doubt constituted to many UFO sightings, as no plane like it had ever been seen before. But what about all of the previous sightings already mentioned, which were only scratching the surface? Not long after Gary Powers was shot down over Russia, and also Rudolf Anderson over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the need for the next generation of reconnaissance aircraft was becoming quite obvious. This was where the A-12 and its successor the SR-71 Blackbird would make their appearance. Codenamed Oxcart, the A-12 was the next generation in spy plane technology. Incredibly fast, with a design that was literally out of this world, the A12 packed technological advancements that surpassed anything that the world had ever seen it was predominantly built from titanium so new processes had to be designed to enable engineers to work with this rigid material new radar absorbing technologies were also developed and with a top speed of nearly 2600 miles an hour and an operating ceiling of at least 85000 feet it was almost untouchable A story circulated between staff and engineers that worked on the project, which stated that when the first test pilot saw the hangar doors open at Area 51 to reveal the A-12, he simply rubbed his eyes and walked away, not believing what he was seeing. It first flew in 1962, then flew on official operations in 1967 but was retired in 1968 in favor of the U.S. Air Force's slightly modified version of the A-12, which was named the SR-71 Blackbird. Chances are, even if you have no interest in military aircraft at all, you'll have seen a picture of the SR-71 Blackbird. Its main design differences between itself and the A-12 were that the Blackbird was longer and heavier. This enabled it to pack in more equipment and carry more fuel to give it a much longer operational distance. It also had better radar absorption capabilities. But if a surface-to-air missile was launched at the Blackbird, its radar would detect the threat and it could simply accelerate away from it. Before we carry on, here's a promo from the brilliant show, The Generally Spooky Podcast. Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends, and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky Podcast is for you. My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller, and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. i I'm chief listener, provider of jokes, and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky Podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden, and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. Now, it's back to the show. So we're now at operation periods from around 1962 to 1998 when the SR-71 was retired. So what other significant UFO sightings and incidents took place between these years? To list them all would make for a truly huge episode, but here's a few for you to mull over various possibilities. In 1964, Police officer Lonnie Zamora had an encounter with an object and its two-person crew just south of Socaro in New Mexico. Zamora described the object as being shaped like the letter O and its two crew members being dressed in white one-piece coveralls. As Zamora stood there observing, he saw the crew enter the craft and then watched as it took off with a blue-orange flame propelling it skywards. On December the 9th, 1965, a fireball was seen streaking across the sky of around six states. It was reported by many witnesses, but it was the people of Kecksburg village that witnessed something crash in woodland. Reports stated that members of the public saw blue smoke appearing above the tree line, as well as strange vibrational noises coming from the same location, but nothing was ever found. The UFO crash in Shag Harbor is almost as famous as the Roswell incident. On the 4th of October, 1967, multiple witnesses reported seeing an illuminated unidentified flying object crash into the harbor and sink. Sounds as if a bomb were being dropped were heard, as well as an explosion, and the witnesses were so sure that they had seen some type of aircraft hit the water that calls flooded into the Canadian police as well as the military. Again, search efforts were conducted, but nothing was ever found. Even President Jimmy Carter reported seeing an unidentified flying object in Georgia. The sightings and incidents just kept coming over the years, including the Travis Walton abduction, the Whitley-Stryber abduction, the JAL 1628 incident as detailed in episode 2 of season 2, the amazing Gulf Breeze UFO sightings and photos, the Phoenix Lights phenomenon, the list goes on and on and on. But how many of these cases were sightings of experimental aircraft? How many of these sightings were test flights of technologies so secret that, to the everyday person, they would be seeing a UFO? From the late 70s through to 1989, Two new aircraft would be developed and test flown out of the Groom Lake facility. They were the F 117A Nighthawk Stealth Fighter, previously known as the HAV Blue, and the B 2 Stealth Bomber. Both of these aircraft again pushed design concepts and technologies to their absolute limits. Incredibly intricate piloting and navigational systems were developed, as well as all new true stealth capabilities, which would give these hugely advanced aircraft the radar signatures of small birds. They were almost invisible to radar, and the success of the stealth fighter would be seen in the First Gulf War. Strange tales from Iraqi ground troops of sightings of flying triangles were proved correct when it was revealed that the stealth fighter was playing an active part in the aerial campaign of that particular conflict. B-2s were also playing their part when they appeared in the 1999 Kosovo conflict and again in Afghanistan, accurately striking targets with absolute precision. But let's be honest, whilst all of these aircraft are incredibly advanced, they're still using forms of jet engine technologies. The vast majority still take off from a runway after gaining enough speed to achieve lift. We know for a fact that behind the curtain of secrecy and development at Area 51, the next generation of fighting, bombing and reconnaissance aircraft are being developed and test flown. The B-21 Raider, which is the replacement of the B-2 stealth bomber, is expected to enter service around 2027. The SR-72, a new version of the SR-71 Blackbird, is allegedly in development stages at this time. The F-22 Raptor stealth fighter jet first flew in around 1997, but wasn't introduced as a military piece of hardware until 2005. The same goes for the F-35 Lightning II. First flown in 2006, introduced in 2015, and then there's the Aurora. The only mildly half-convincing pieces of circumstantial evidence that we have of such an aircraft even existing are photos of strange contrails in the sky and skyquakes which have been recorded near the Groom Lake facility. With the stories and legends still swirling around that alien technology is already here on our planet, is it conceivable to think that this technology is already being reverse-engineered at Area 51? have craft which have allegedly crash-landed in places such as Roswell, Shag Harbor and Aztec New Mexico been reassembled by an ultra-top-secret group of scientists, engineers and, dare I say it, aliens, under the watchful eyes of the American military and the CIA. Sightings of strange unidentified flying objects have been reported by credible witnesses such as commercial pilots as well as military fighter pilots for years. They report these craft traveling at incredible rates of speed with unreal acceleration which any normal pilot wouldn't be able to endure. Many reports also state the existence of what looks like some sort of visible magnetic or gravity fields around the objects which seem to give it the look that it's being slightly distorted. So are these objects being developed at Area 51? Well, over the last 50 years at least, the base has been expanding at a huge rate. More hangars and buildings have appeared, as well as it now having one of the longest runways in the world. So what is going on there? Why the secrecy and what was so explosive about Bob Lazar's story? Well, before we get to Bob, let's not forget that many people who have worked at Area 51 have already come forward with their stories and experiences. The vast majority of them are ex lockheed Martin employees or scientists and engineers employed by the military who were able to speak about certain aspects of their duties out there at Dreamland, but who also still have the respect and integrity to observe that what they were part of was and to a certain extent still is highly classified. Before we carry on, here's another promo for a great podcast called Murder Road Trip. Hey, I'm Shan. And I'm Troy. And we are going on a little murder road trip. Where every Sunday we take you to a new state alphabetically to tell you the story of murder, spooks, and everything in between yes join us every sunday for bad jokes murder and ghosts it doesn't get much better than that so grab your snackies get on in and we're gonna go on a murder road trip now it's back to the show Tales from the people who worked on the A-12 and the SR-71 spy planes knew that the American military had set up dummy companies and bank accounts to enable them to buy titanium from the USSR. The Russians apparently had no idea at the time that all of this titanium that was being bought up by seemingly harmless contractors was in fact being used on the very planes that would be spying on them in years to come. Knowledge like this is incredibly sensitive and there is a fundamental need to keep all aspects of highly classified projects as locked down as possible. Hence the need for the Official Secrets Act. In the US, like many countries, if you work on sensitive projects for the military or the government, you are required to sign the Official Secrets Act. Many projects remain classified for decades, which requires workers to keep quiet. But what happens if someone begins to expose aspects of top-secret projects to family or friends, or even the media? Or worst of all, a country who is considered a potential enemy? In the US, you can be imprisoned for up to 14 years and have an unlimited fine imposed upon you for breaking the Official Secrets Act, which is a good enough reason to keep your mouth shut. And it's this law that helps protect the military's interest in the development of ultra-top-secret projects. But also for when things go wrong. In 2019, a man was shot dead after trying to get to the base in his car. He managed to drive around 8 miles towards part of the top-secret facility until he was surrounded by base security guards and the Nevada Sheriff's deputies. He got out of his vehicle holding an unknown cylindrical object and refused to obey commands given to him by security officials. He was shot dead after he was considered a risk to national security. The FBI was brought in to investigate and to clear the matter up, but no one was prosecuted for the unidentified man's death as signs around the perimeter of the base clearly state that deadly force is authorized upon anyone who trespasses. Also, How do you interview security guards who aren't technically allowed to speak to you? Another incident, much more serious than this one, occurred in 1994, and this one affected actual workers at Area 51. Around a total of 39 men who had previously worked at the facility issued a lawsuit against the United States Air Force citing environmental violations due to highly toxic chemicals being destroyed in burn pits. The effects that the fumes from these chemicals caused ranged from liver failure, phototoxic dermatitis and other skin diseases to severe lung damage and even birth defects. One ex-employee, Sam Patanostro, went on record saying that the burn pits were located to the north of the main facilities and were approximately 15 feet deep and 300 feet long. He also said that all departments on the whole complex would dump their waste into the pits, including employees of Lockheed Martin. When the pits were set ablaze, They would burn at incredibly high temperatures and give off an acrid thick smoke as well as a plastic type smell. It's thought that these chemicals could have been things like highly classified paints and radar absorption coatings which could not be taken off the base. The lawsuit ran for years with the US military claiming that revealing the composition of any of these chemicals could compromise national security and that would also apply to the courts wanting to interview any of the ex-employees. They were sworn to secrecy under law, even as their conditions worsened and, in some cases, the direct effects of exposure to these toxic burn pits resulted in their deaths. Every president signs a determination which, in effect, gives Area 51 freedom to do whatever it needs to do to produce materials, weapons and aircraft, which help protect the national security of the United States of America. As of today, Area 51 covers an area of approximately 2.9 million acres, is surrounded by mountains in difficult terrain, is guarded to the extreme by privately employed security services, as well as defense systems and weaponry around the perimeter and inside the base, and is answerable to no one. But is what you see on the surface just a cover for what could be underground? Alleged ex-employees have stated that the facility stretches for miles underground, with tunnels and transport systems which can ferry workers and high-ranking military officials to secluded and distant sections of the complex. This cuts the need for workers to travel above ground and risk being photographed via satellite. There are also reports of Area 51 having approximately 40 floors underground, which are restricted to various highly classified top-secret projects. It's also where alien bodies from the crash sites such as Roswell were taken for further study and storage. There were also rumors of live extraterrestrial alien beings being involved in and advising on various reverse engineering projects concerning their own technology. But all of this is just rumor, speculation, and conjecture, isn't it? Being just 90 miles to the northwest of Las Vegas, you'd think that the gambling capital of the world would see its fair share of unidentified flying objects. But the only evidence you will ever see there is at McCarran Airport, where, at a highly guarded terminal, the Janet flights ferry non existent workers to and from this non existent base to work on non-existent projects. The Janet flights are a fleet of six Boeing 737-600 commercial airliners, white in colour with a red stripe that runs the whole length of the aircraft both sides. Janet stands for Joint Air Network for Employee Transportation, or as some like to call it, just another non-existent terminal. So now that you've heard about what officially goes on inside Area 51, and some of what has been developed and tested there, and also a small summary of some of the most famous UFO cases in that area of the world that have been witnessed while all of this highly classified top secret business has gone on alongside them, where does Bob Lazar fit into all of this? Well, you'll have to wait for the second episode in this series where we'll get into exactly where Bob Lazar allegedly worked, what he worked on and what he witnessed. But on our next episode, we'll be delving into another famous cursed object. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing, and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing, and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering, or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think this podcast was recorded at pink flamingo music production studio in Hale, owen in the west midlands england for a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode please refer to the show's notes thank you all so much again for listening and we'll be back very soon with another episode until then stay safe and take care